This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 147 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. There's that old saying, the more things change, the more things stay the same. In cybersecurity and incident response, even with all the new tools, increased speed, and mounting threats, a large part of keeping any organization safe comes down to taking care of the basics, the tried and true techniques that have served us well for decades. Our guest this week is Gavin Reed, Chief Information Security Officer at Recorded Future. He's a firm believer in taking care of the basics, empowering employees to collaborate and take healthy risks, and making sure that your communication style is concise and actionable. All good advice, tried and true. Stay with us. So I started doing security at NASA at the Johnson Space Center a couple of decades back, and from there went to go work at Cisco And I worked at Cisco for about 15 years. And then for the last um, four years I've been working, I worked at a couple of startups. One, uh, Landcope, that got bought by Cisco. And then more recently, uh, for the last couple of years, at Recorded Future. And so was threat intelligence uh, always the the lane that you were attracted to? Early on, um, I think I've worked out that we had a lot of really good incident detection tools, but they were only as good or only as useful as the intelligence that we could play into them. It's like, you know, an intrusion detection system, if it has a really good set of signatures to look at, can provide valuable results. If it doesn't, it doesn't provide anything uh, back. And I think that's often misunderstood in the security community is, is people think they buy different appliances and, you know, somehow magic will happen. You really have to have good intelligence about what the hackers are doing Um, that you play into those tools in order for them to be effective. How do you come at that in terms of your management style? How do you you approach that? I truly believe in empowerment. Um, I I used to make a lot of the same mistakes that some leaders make, in particular channeling all the hard projects to say, you know, one of the MVPs of the team or the folks that are really, really good. Um, And what that does is it makes, you know, him or her kind of stressed out and overloaded And over time, I learned to challenge employees with tasks, projects that stretch their capabilities, you know, be there to pick up the pieces if needed. Um, But in that way, we sort of grow the individual and the team capabilities, and we keep everyone interested in growing. So that took me a little little while, but eventually Hmm. uh, I sort of learned that. Um, I'm also a big believer in having real connections between people in the team. You know, most people organically want to help and work together but somehow the office environment gets in the way. So I really like bringing people together outside of the fluorescent lights of a conference room and have, have them start sort of relationships outside of projects. And then I think lastly, somewhere in my career, I figured out I was spending more time with my team than my family. And so I really <laughs> wanted those relationships to be real. And you know, at the end of the day, that's kind of what it's all about, people getting together and sharing experiences and work can be part of that if leadership cares about it. Can you give us some examples of the kinds of uh, efforts that you have with your team, the, the types of uh, off-site events or activities that you find useful? Yeah, so for example, next week uh, in London, um, I'm bringing together a, part, a portion of the security team. 
where we're just going to kind of work on, you know, what is our one and three year roadmap? What are we doing? What are some of the key projects that we're uh, sort of taking on board? And in, in that way, you know, everyone kind of gets a say, uh, the folks get empowered and we get to spend some time outside of work. The, the folks are not even none of the folks that are on the team are actually part of the London team. And so they, they have to they're away from home. So they you know, can go out to dinner. They don't have to come back you know, home after work. They can spend some time after hours with the team as well. I think that's a really interesting insight, the, the importance of, you know, I think especially in, in a technical industry like this one, it's, it's easy to get caught up in the, the numbers and the technology and all the ones and zeros. But at the end of the day, you know, these are people and they have lives outside of work. They have families, um, you know, they have wants and needs and desires. And, uh, as, and all of that sort of gets woven through their professional life as well. Yeah, it's amazing, you know, people that, you know, over email and and per, perhaps, you know, dialing into a, ro- you know, remotely dialing into a project, they can, you know, feel uh, not a huge kinship with the other folks on the team. But once they've actually, you know, broken bread, shared some time outside of work, they tend, that human aspect takes over and they tend to really want to help people. It's It's part of human nature. Now, being on the C-suite yourself, I'm curious, you know, how do you communicate um, messages to your own board about technical matters and, and do that in a way that's understandable? Yeah, so like what's important to understand in that, I think, is is you have to provide information that's actionable to the board. So you can present all kinds of interesting technical information. But if there's no action needed from them, you're kind of wasting their time. At one of my previous employers, we had very specific guidelines set for when and what the board needed uh, from security to, you know, before we could even go and speak to them. Uh, and so, you know, you've got to provide information that's contextually relevant to their jobs and role. Providing status on projects, unless they're board driven, is is often irrelevant. And, and so that's where I see security uh, professionals sometimes failing. It's They've got a lot of good information. They want to share it but it's nothing that's really actionable. So, and I'd sort of end on saying that um, instead of talking project, talk risk, um, and specifically how that risk differs in your organization to say some of their peer organizations, that's really helpful context to whatever security point you're attempting to get across. I guess it's as important to know what to leave out as to what to include. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I'll give you a, a, a story about when I worked at NASA. We we would um, we had a uh, once a quarter readout to to the board there, which were basically the directors of all the different uh, directorates. From an IT and security perspective, I, I one of my peers would would give a readout, and they just loved her. And I gave a readout. They kind of hated me, and <laughs> I sort of an, analyzed it over time. And, and I looked at what she was doing versus what I was doing, and she was giving them very, very compact, actionable information. And I was trying to give every single detail about these projects that I was on and, and often, you know, went way over their heads and they, they didn't appreciate it. So you have to be able to tailor your information contextually to what's relevant to the decision making that they're doing. You know, when you look at your own career path and the experiences you've had, what sort of advice do you have for folks who are coming up in the industry? So, like, one of the things, um, you know, there, there, you know, obviously, there's, there's a lot of, a, a lot of stuff there. 
I'm a big believer in understanding how technologies work. And so we see sort of two career paths in security today. One, we have folks that have sort of come up in, in, in the security realm where they may know a bit about, you know, vulnerabilities. Um, they may have done some fuzzing, some pen testing, uh, but they don't really understand how large IT infrastructures work. And, and there's definitely um, a limited value to the sort of input that they can put into a large organization if they don't understand the impact um, of what they're asking. So if they don't really understand IT infrastructure, IT architecture at scale, then when they're making recommendations, their recommendations may not be very realistic. So I think understanding how computers, networks work um, at a base and an IT level is extremely important. Um, the other uh, thing is, like, personally, I've always volunteered for the unfun jobs. Um, mm. That's the one thing I think that's really helped me get ahead. So I wouldn't be afraid to take on new things and, and be confident about it. Um, and, and in doing that, like, one of the things I've also done is help mold the job to what the company really needs. So not just what's asked you. And, and, and I feel, I see this, you know, mistake made by many uh, employees is they get asked or you know, given a specific task and, the, and they feel that they should just do that, you've really got to look at like, what's the total picture that you can deliver? Um, typically when you're given a task um, and you concentrate on said task, uh, you may find that there's a lot of peripheral information that's involved with the successful delivery. So, and, and you're there, you're, you know, the, the feet on the street. So make sure you deliver the total picture. Again, I would say just take on the hard jobs, leave the cushy ones for others. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I have a colleague who, uh, you know, when it comes to following directions, he, he often refers to uh, something that he calls malicious obedience, <laughs> which, which you know, follow, following, doing exactly what you've been told to do, knowing that it might not be in, in uh, the company's best interest. Yeah, there, there's a, a story that I've, I've told a couple of new teams that, are, that I've maybe taken over, which in, it's, um, you know, you may ask, you know, say, hey, I, I, you know, I, I need some milk. And um, a, a good delivery on that um, might be, you know, someone has looked and said, okay, this person needs a, a glass. He probably needs chilled milk. He needs a, a napkin. Um, that's really mm. what's involved in, you know, hey, I want some milk. A bad delivery would be, you know, getting a gallon milk jug and throwing it at his head. <laughs> um, you know, the, and there, there's there's a huge difference between the two, and and you know there's a there's ability to to add additional value if you really kind of look into what you're being asked to do and sort of take total ownership for it. But I suppose I mean that that loops back and, and speaks to your own management style as well. That you're fostering an environment where people feel as though they can take their own personal risks to deliver, to, to interpret what they think needs to be done and not be punished for it. Yeah, no, absolutely. You've got to um, ha have a safe environment where people feel that they can try things out um, and, and be, uh, be aggressive, be adventurous. When you look around at the landscape today in terms of what we're facing with cyber threats, what's at the top of your list? What are the things that you feel companies should have their eye on? So, you know, it's, and it hasn't really changed that much over the years, like you're going to get breached, that that will happen. It's most likely going to come through email or the web. Um, then, you know, post that, the miscreants are going to remotely control, say, a PC in your environment, and they're going to try and spread laterally. 
Um, you know, when, when they're doing that, they're going to look to compromise accounts that have extended access. Um, you know, that, that same, you know, could have done the same answer to that question 10 years ago. So, hmm. you know, once you have good capabilities at detecting and interrupting that, um, you can work out from there. But if you don't, this is where you should start, right? You should, you know, if you, if you don't have the ability to um, detect, to interrupt, to respond, to recover from that sort of scenario, that's the most common one. It's the one that you see, you know, being played out over and over and over again. It's, it's very easy to do and, you know, do the open nature of our networks. It's, it's uh, often, often successful. Uh, beyond that, on unintended exposure of credentials or security controls, especially hmm. in those third parties. So, um, you know, the, you, you've probably got third parties that either make your product or hold sensitive uh, data. Make sure that you're paying attention to the access that they have. If that access gets shared inappropriately, that you guys, that you'll notice it and that you'll be able to respond to it. Um, we've seen this um, very, very uh, explicitly happen in, in the AWS space where um, either, you know, there's a backup um, that's left open or someone's credentials, someone's API key gets uh, released on the internet and very, very quickly the hackers are scanning for this information and taking advantage of it. When, when a breach does occur, what are the first things that people should do? What, what, uh, what should their first course of action be? Well, they've got to find out what was exposed. Um, and, uh, you know, depending on what was exposed, uh, what's the um, totality of, of that attack? You know, what's the, um, what's the potential impact? And once they've sort of work, worked out that, like really the state of the art of incident response, you know, for teams is that they can accurately, um, you know, look at a particular um, set of events and figure out, you know, the totality of the attack and then how to quickly bring the business back to a known good state, um, you know, as, as accurately, as effectively as possible. You know, in your own position as uh, as CISO, um, what do you consider to be you know the key attributes of success? What what makes a what makes a good CISO in in today's environment? I would say, like in in a single word, flexibility. So a good CISO mm -hmm. can balance company risk with security costs to steer organizations in in the right direction. Uh, <clears throat> as a CISO, you're responsible for navigating you know, the company's need for good security, you know, alongside the costs that are incurred. And there's never really a 100% correct solution. However, there are, are many <laughs> incorrect paths that, that you could uh, sort of go down. And mm. I would say like an ineffective CISO, they can effectively balance and they end up either, you know, putting the company at risk by not effectively assessing a situation or driving good security solutions, or they push for security over IT connectivity or the business needs for a quick solution. And, and in turn, that sort of slows the business down. A really bad CISO does both of those things interchangeably. So on a personal level, like I don't believe in security for security's sake. I believe hmm. security as it fits the business needs of the organization. And those are going to change depending on what sort of, you know, what, you know, what, what is your uh, organization? What sort of data are you covering and the you know various uh, sort of drivers uh, for the organization. You know, I think a lot of people when they look around, you know, they wonder why haven't we gotten an upper hand faster than we have? You know, why aren't we farther ahead than maybe where they thought we'd be? You know, a few years back, 
Um, what's your take on that? Why, why do you think um, we're not gaining ground faster than we are? Yeah, I know that's um, it's an interesting thing, and I'm not 100 percent sure we don't have the upper hand, right? We've hmm. got you know most businesses are working on the internet, banking, some of the most sensitive information you know in the world is traded uh, securely as an integral part of like how the human race works now. Um, and, and when I do my job well, nothing happens. So, so no one reports on that, right? Um, no one reports on nothing happened today. When I'll tell you, when I, when I started uh, at Cisco, um, the CISO at the time asked me what I was most worried about. And, and my answer back in, in, in the late 90s um, and today is the same thing. It's, it's complexity. Um, the more IT infrastructure we have, the more complex it is, the harder it is to secure and monitor. Um, when we did the original Active Directory design at NASA and, and at Cisco, we didn't have in mind it would be attacked by bad guys. We didn't design it with that um, sort of uh, criteria. So what organizations have had to do later is throw out a lot of their existing IT infrastructure and completely replace it. And this is hard and expensive and it ends up, uh, you know, hopefully being more secure, but not necessarily offering a bunch of new capabilities. And, and that's often what drives these sort of massive IT up, uplifts. Um, this is fundamentally a hard sell, and many organizations have, have not done it. Making this all sort of more, you know, harder is that the product landscape is endless. You combine that with environments that are, are really 100% unique, and there's no standard way of quantifying the situation and this creates chaos from a, sh a solutioning perspective. And as well, I would say, you know, some of the things that have slowed us down perhaps is as we look at incident response and detection as somehow a replacement for good security best practice. And this has been exasperated by the security community selling bolt-on security appliances um, to somehow cure a broken security model. You know, we've built security um, weak or indefensible infrastructures and fixing basics like configuration control, patching, compartmentalization, attribution, often is going to take a major IT uh, infrastructure upgrade, and very few have done this. Many more have tried to add some of those magic boxes to somehow make up for this technical debt. And then you can see this is a topic I'm kind of passionate about, but I'd say lastly, incident-wise, unfortunately, we seem to have created this culture of victim shaming. Um, it's the organization's fault they got hacked. They should have done more of this or that. They should have done more of something or less of something else. And this is commonplace. And, and, and in particular, the security Twitterazzi have a lot to answer for here. Um, this victim shaming, it's not productive. Um, and the attitude really runs counter to working together to make things better. You know, things like, you know, people don't learn because they don't share. Organizations are scared to talk about getting hacked because they're worried. Um, you know, they s quickly sweep, you know, incidents under the carpet. Instead, they should be put into the spotlight, held up so that other organizations can learn. And then, um, you know, lastly, you know, uh, security fundamentals. I've talked to hundreds of security teams all over the world, and maybe 1% of them have invested in doing the basics right. It's a real rarity. We live in a target-rich environment that enables not hinders hackers. Our thanks to Recorded Futures' Gavin Reed for joining us. 
Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Futures Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Monica Tadros, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. 